So let's go ahead now and turn to uh, Acts 8. Let's see. We made the point, let's remember that in Acts 6 we made the point that up until Acts 6, every place where the specification is given about who did the miracle, it was an apostle without fail. And uh, so in Acts 6, then we have the story of the laying on of the apostles' hands, verse 6, upon these seven men. And then verse 8, Stephen is the first one who is specified as doing a miracle other than the apostles. So in all this time, there's not, a, not one reference to the 120 doing a miracle. And uh, now we have the first person other than an apostle, and that is Stephen. And then the second that's going to do a miracle other than an apostle is the, another one of that same seven. So you don't have people running all over the place doing miracles around here. It's the apostles and now these two men. And that's all. We can't find any other reference in these early chapters. So let's skip on over to chapter 8 now because Stephen, of course, uh, is uh, slain. But he did do miracles. But in chapter 8, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed unto them the Christ. And the multitudes gave heed with one accord unto the things that were spoken by Philip when they heard and saw the signs which he did. So the signs were such as to get their attention. And when they heard Philip preaching, the signs underscored that, that he was inspired of God. And it tells about the things that he did, casting out unclean spirits, healing the palsied, healing the lame. And the story of Simon the sorcerer is given because it happened, but it also serves to underscore the, the uh, genuineness, the authenticity of these miracles that Philip was doing because Simon was a professional magician, sorcerer, faker. So he would have been able to spot if these miracles were not real and the thing that impressed him so was they're real. And therefore, he himself believed and being baptized continued with Philip. And so that really enhances the uh, genuineness of these miracles Philip was doing. And beholding signs and great miracles wrought, he was amazed. Now, so far, the people believed Philip preaching, and they were baptized. Simon believed he was baptized. The people were, um, they believed Philip preaching the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized. They, uh, verse 14, they had received the word of God. Now, the reason I'm mentioning those is think about this in connection with what you've read about, uh, heard about Calvinism. That you can't, you can't believe without a first work of grace. And so here they had uh, heard, when they heard, and they saw the signs, and they believed, and they were baptized, they received the word of God. Now, according to Calvin, what all would have had to happen to you so far for that to occur? You'd have had to have the Spirit. He would have had to do a, a work of grace on you. Then nothing at all said about that. It's totally attributed to what they have heard and what they have seen. So in verse, uh, verses 15 and 16, Peter and John were sent for. When they came down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
for as yet it was fallen upon none of them, only they had been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Yeah, you put that with the other stuff they've done. They've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. So then they lay hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the praying was that they might receive the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't only through praying. It was through the laying on of hands. But I think this suggests that it was not merely candy that the apostles could hand out to whomever they wanted to, that it had to be done in, in connection with God's desire, and so they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, so that it was also up to God to whom they could give this, uh, this gift, and they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 18 is very significant. Because verse 18 does not say, now when Simon thought, he saw. So this is not Simon's words. These are Luke's words. Therefore, it is Luke telling us that Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. So right there, you have the actual statement of how the Holy Spirit was given. It was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Because that is Luke's observation, not Simon's. So there's no question that's how it was done. So that's very important because it's establishing a, um, a chain by which this is accomplished. That God gave the Holy Spirit through the, to the apostles by the Holy Spirit baptism. And then they laid their hands on others and gave them the power. But they had already done that Philip. So the question is, why had Philip not given it to the Samaritans? He couldn't. So the one upon whom the apostles had laid their hands had the Spirit to do miracles, but he himself could not in turn give that power to anyone else. And I believe that that is the case. I never read of where uh, one upon whom the apostles had laid their hands would in turn be able to give that power to someone else. I never read that. So the specification is here through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Well, already, <clears throat> if you just take that and, as you like to say, extrapolate from that, what's going to happen when the last apostle dies? There will be no one left to lay hands on someone and give them the Holy Spirit. And when the last one dies, upon whom the Spirit has, upon whom the apostolic hands has been laid, then what? And, and and we won't have any more miracles. Miracles will be over. Because, yeah, we do have a complete word. But there is a chain there that, that has an end to it. And uh, that is another thing that leads to the firm conclusion that there would be an end to these miracles. They were not intended to go on forever and ever. So uh, the story there about Simon... And what he wanted to buy, give me this power that on whomsoever I lay my hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sure that Simon wanted power to work miracles as well, but the primary thing he was interested in was buying the ability to give it to others. The only thing I can figure out is he was going to make a mint by selling that to other people. That's how these sorcerers usually did with their tricks. They would sell them to one another and they would make money. 
Well, if he had the power to give you the, the power to do miracles, how much would you pay me for that? See? So I think that that's what he was, that, I think his, uh, his covetousness and his avarice were, were uh, coming with him. And, uh, you know, they'd come along with him. He hadn't dealt with those things. And so Peter says, your silver perish with you because you have thought to obtain the gift of God with money. Uh, so you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. So he's not going to have anything to do with the miracles because his heart's not right before God. They're not going to lay their hands on him, give him miraculous power. They're certainly not going to sell the gift. They, they couldn't sell the gift to him. So it couldn't, it couldn't be done like that. Alright, so, um, um, what I want to do now is look at another case where this where this occurs, and that's Acts 19. And uh, it's a case where an apostle laid his hands on certain ones. Acts 19 and verse 6, Paul found these disciples that had been baptized into John's baptism. And he preached to them, and see verse 5, then they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So in both of these cases, you have the, uh, the whole process conversion culminating with the baptism, without the Holy Spirit being given to them. Then they're given the Holy Spirit. So, verse 6, Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, they spake with tongues and prophesied. So, uh, and uh, let's see, and, and it says they spake with tongues and prophesied. There was the, the uh, evidence that they had received the Holy Spirit. Okay. I was trying to think. Uh, there's another idea that went running across my mind. Yeah, yeah, this is the Apostle Paul. That's, that's right. Not the baptism of the Spirit, but the laying on of the hands. That's right. I, I think that what I, was, what I was thinking about in my mind <clears throat> was the question that's raised about Acts 2.38. What was the gift of the Spirit? You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, whatever that was, was not connected with the laying on of hands. Now, brethren have differed, and students have differed, no matter what their religious preference over what that gift is. You're probably not surprised about that. And uh, some say that it's the gift of the Spirit himself, or some say it is the gift given by the Spirit. Well, the fact is the language could mean either one. It could mean either one. So you have to look at that fact. So, uh, but to me, the point made is that whatever this is, you will receive it. You repent and be baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because this laying on of hands was not done until chapter 6. There's absolutely no indication that there had been anything like that earlier. So, uh, so was Paul, was Peter saying, you repent and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit someday? Or was he saying as a result of the conversion process, you will receive the Holy Spirit in some way? Well, we already read about, uh, uh, Stephen and the others, that they had to be full of the Holy Spirit. There was a sense in which the Holy Spirit was given. And so I think that it's talking about in the sanctifying presence and work of the Spirit in the lives of the people. Uh, even the gift of the Spirit. I think that what it's talking about is the transforming that the Spirit would do for every person that was uh, that was baptized. 
that the Spirit, you will have His transforming work in your life. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what it's talking about, the sanctifying, consecrating influence of the Spirit. Um, But regardless of that, the fact still remains that the specific passages we have clearly show that it was only through the laying on of apostles' hands that the Spirit was given. Now, I have some exceptions that we need to study. They are not really exceptions, but they might be thought to be exceptions. They need to be considered. But what what I've tried to show you is that you start off with kind of a thesis in 1 Corinthians 13, 9 and 10 that uh, when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away. And then you begin to show that in Acts chapter 1, with the background of John 14:26 and John 15:26 and John 16:13, in Acts 1:5, here's the promise made to the apostles. And then we follow that all the way through, and we see that the apostles received the miraculous powers, nobody else. They laid their hands on these people, and then they could do miracles. Paul lays his hands on these people. So you see a whole system there that you study through, uh, a whole context established here in these uh, early chapters in the book of Acts. And you do that. Well, here in 9, let's go back to chapter 9, and we're going to look at an exception here, except it's not an exception. It just appears to be. All right, let's begin by noting in verse 12, that when Peter, I mean, when Paul gets to Damascus, and we meet this disciple named Ananias, okay? Uh, Dennis, how about reading verse 12? And in addition, he had seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Now note that verse. The specified purpose of his laying his hands on him is that he might receive his sight. Ananias is going to heal Paul of his blindness. Alright, now look down in verse 17, and let's uh, read that one, Dan. And then the man turned his way and entered the house, and laid his hands on him, and he said, But Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Alright, so in, in that verse, what is it that is related to Paul's receiving his sight and the Holy Spirit. So what does he say? The Lord hath what? Hath sent me, doesn't it? Alright, so here is the coming of Ananias. Being sent by the Lord, Ananias comes for two purposes. And what are the two purposes? All right, number one, receive your sight. And number two, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we read verse 12, what what is related to the laying on of his hands? Is it the Holy Spirit? That's right. So the laying on of his hands is is connected with this. So the question is, in what sense would his coming be related to Paul's being filled with the Holy Spirit? 
not with the laying on of the hands, because that was specified to be that he might receive his sight. So what purpose would his coming serve that would enable Paul to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's what he told him. What did he tell him? Now, what the Lord said to tell him in verse 15, he is a chosen vessel to me, and so on. <clears throat> Let's go to Acts 22 for a little fuller uh, a fuller sight about what he says. Okay, let's read there, uh, verse 13. Paul says, He came to me, standing by me, said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And we remember he laid his hands on him in Acts 9.12. And now uh, read verses uh, 14 and 15, uh, Dennis. Then he said, The God of our Father has chosen you that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Therefore, what he is, uh, what he does in the connection with the laying, the uh, receiving his sight, is coming to help him receive his sight, the laying on of his hands. What he does that he may be filled with the Holy Spirit is to tell him of his apostolic commission. This is what the Lord has plans for you to do. Now the fact is, we don't read, we don't read of the actual coming of the Holy Spirit upon Paul. That story is not recorded. When it actually came, when the Holy Spirit actually came upon him from heaven. But since he had the same ability that the other apostles did to communicate the Holy Spirit to others, then we infer that he did receive that Holy Spirit baptism. And, uh, you know, when he says, uh, the gospel that I preach was not made known unto me by men, nor was I taught it in Galatians 1, uh, there can be no question, therefore, that he did receive the Holy Spirit, but there's no passage that says that Ananias laid his hands on him and gave it to him. So Ananias is no exception to this. The only verse that specifies what the laying on of his hands accomplished was to give Paul his sight back. It was his coming. The Lord hath sent me that these two things might happen. And this one happened because he laid his hands on him. Verse 12 of Acts 9. This one happened because he told him when he got there of his apostolic commission. So this is not an exception to the idea that it was through the laying on of apostolic hands that the Holy Spirit was given, even though it might appear to be. But in that same chapter, chapter 9, you can look in both those verses, and you can uh, make it clear what the purpose really was of his laying on of his hands. Now another possible exception that someone might look at is in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14. And this was a really interesting one. 1 Timothy 4, 14. All right, now read that one, uh, Dan. Now notice what the word was there in connection with the laying on of the hands. It was with. 
Now look at 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6. And read that one. Therefore, we must be stirred up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hand. Now, what's the difference between 2 Timothy, I mean 1 Timothy 4.14 and the word that's used and 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6? One uses with and the other uses through. All right, with means accompanied by. So that I believe the idea is that when Paul laid his hands on Timothy to give him miraculous powers, because he says, through the laying on of my hands, and that word means by means of, in 2 Timothy 1.6, it was at the time that the presbytery, meaning the presbyters or elders of the church where Timothy was, laid their hands on him. Now, the brethren in Antioch laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas when they sent them out on the first missionary journey. What would they have laid their hands on them for at that time? To wish them well. Bid them farewell. Consecrate them to the work. So, when Paul is giving Timothy the Holy Spirit, it was with the laying on the hands of the presbytery. And I think for the most logical presbytery that would have been, because that word means a group of elders, would have been the elders of Lystra, where Timothy had grown up, and from which Timothy went with Paul on these journeys. So there's not really anything to be confusing there, because it doesn't say that it was through the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. It says with. Because, see, the point is, that if you could find the, that the presbytery laid their hands on Timothy and gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit, gave him miraculous powers, then you have an exception to the idea that it was only done through the apostles. But it wasn't. That's not an exception because it was with the laying on of their hands, meaning in the company of, accompanied by. Now sometimes you can say, I'm going to unlock this with a key. And in that sense, you'd be using with in the sense of an instrument. You're doing it with it. But with also can mean in the company of. And in this, that's what it means. It means in the company of. It does not mean uh, with in the sense of with a screwdriver or with a key or something like that. So there is no exception in Scripture to this idea that the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles and gave them miraculous powers. They, in turn, could lay their hands on someone and give them miraculous powers. But that person, in turn, could not turn around and give miraculous power to someone else. Um, and one of the things, I'm, I, I want to go ahead, because this is when it's uh, on my mind here. So let me go ahead and let me let you look at the uh, last page of your notes there. And I want to read this quotation here. This is from Philip Schott, one of the greatest of the writers on church history. <clears throat> Let me give you a minute to get that. So I think it's a very impressive quotation. Now this is not a member of the Lord's church. This is a, I think he was a Calvinist, and, uh, but he was really a great historian. The hand of God has drawn a bold line of demarcation between the century of miracles and the succeeding ages to show 
the abrupt transition and the striking. I think I meant by to show by the abrupt transition and the striking contrast the difference between the work of God and the work of man and to impress us the more deeply with the supernatural origin of Christianity and the incomparable value of the New Testament. So his observation is very powerful so far as I'm concerned that he observes that the miraculous era was the first century. You come to the end of the first century, that's the miracles. They're gone. And this would fit in with what we have seen because uh, uh, as, as we pointed out, when the apostles die, the last one of them is gone. Nobody is there to give it to anybody else. And after the last person dies to whom it has been given, there's nobody else to do a miracle. Now there's one other case that we need to look at, and that's Cornelius. So let's go to Cornelius in chapter 10. So to sum up, there are two ways we read about in which men receive the Holy Spirit. One is the baptism directly from heaven without the imposition of the hands of men, and the other is through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And so the uh, case now comes up about Cornelius. And I know you know the story about Cornelius. Uh, he was a Gentile. He was uh, a God-fearer, but not a proselyte. Now, proselyte was a Jew, I mean a Gentile converted to Judaism, including circumcision. But a God-fearer was a Gentile who accepted the God of the Old Testament and the moral things and many of the spiritual things of the Old Testament, but he did not accept Judaism as a whole. So Cornelius is called a devout man, which would be translated a, a God-fearer in some literature. That's what he was. So God uh, told him, he sent an angel, the angel told him to go get Peter who will come and tell you words whereby you will be saved. Now that's in Acts 11:14, where Paul, where Peter is telling about what happened. And he uses in verse 14, he will speak unto you words whereby you shall be saved. So that's important to note that it wasn't that you'll be saved by Holy Spirit baptism. You will be saved by words. Go get Peter. All right, so Peter comes, and uh, and uh, when he comes and he preaches to them and so on, in verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all them that heard the word, on all of them, not just Cornelius, but on all of them that heard the word. And uh, there was no laying on of hands here. Also, you can perceive that there is seemingly no indication on that, that Peter was expecting this. I think that it's pretty obvious that it was a surprise. And when he tells about this in Acts 11, he says, And as I began to speak, verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, even as on us at the beginning. So I think that it's pretty clear this was a surprise to Peter. So not only did Peter not lay his hands on them, it hadn't even occurred to him because normally when they laid hands on them, was it before or after they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus? It was after. So if Peter had been going to do anything like that, it would have been after they had been baptized. So this is something that is totally uh, outside of his expectations. 
the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius, this Gentile, and this really, really shakes the mind of Peter up. It's like God is taking him and shaking him. You, know, just, you get it? You get it now? So Peter is really seeing the point. And verse 45, they of the circumcision that believed were amazed, as many as came of Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the question that is, is, uh, that we raise about this is what was the purpose of this Holy Spirit falling upon Cornelius? Now, what the Pentecostal world likes to say is, so he could be saved. They view this as the miraculous experience that, that a person can expect to have in his conversion. And, and yet, in every reference, they were amazed because that on the Gentiles was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, the emphasis is not upon what it did to Cornelius. The emphasis is upon what the impact was on those who were there of the, Gent- of the Jews, the Jewish Christians. Wow, look, look. Well, after this, he says, verse 47, Can any man forbid the water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that same expression of being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus is used of Cornelius after he's received the Holy Spirit. That is used of the Samaritans before they receive the Holy Spirit. Now the way Pentecostals do, they, they usually will just confuse the idea of laying on of hands Holy Spirit and baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't really draw a distinction there. Now there might be some, but generally I've not found that they do. So one of the things you could do is to show them the difference that Scripture makes and show them how in the Samaritan's case and uh, the case of uh, those men in Acts 19, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and then received the Holy Spirit. In the case of Cornelius, he received the Holy Spirit and then was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that would uh, make them think, wow, boy, there's no rhyme or reason to this. Well, there is, though. There is rhyme or reason to it. The problem is you just haven't studied it in a consistent way. When you study in a consistent way, then there's no problem whatever. All right, now looking at the uh, the discussion of Peter, he just tells about the whole thing that happened uh, in uh, chapter 11 there. He's just telling about the whole thing that happened. And then in verse 15 he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, even as on us at the beginning. So instead of saying the Holy Spirit fell on them, even as on uh, Stephen and Philip and those others and the Samaritans upon whom we've laid our hands. No, it wasn't like that. For one thing, there were no laying on hands involved. There was no laying on hands involved. So the Holy Spirit fell on them. He means directly from heaven without human interposition. When, when do you have, how long do you have to go back to get a case like that? Even at the beginning. Now, of course, in Paul's case, but Peter did not have certain knowledge of that. He wasn't there. So he says, even as on us at the beginning. Well, Peter, when you saw that, what did that make you think? Now, verse 16. Uh, well, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
Now you can read some commentaries that will say this is not Holy Spirit baptism that Cornelius received and they will go out of their way. They will move heaven and earth. Some brethren will just move heaven and earth to try to avoid saying Cornelius was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I think why they do it is because they're trying to keep him from being an apostle. <laughs> I think that's why. But my question is, if it were not Holy Spirit baptism, then why did Peter say, it reminded me of the Lord's promise, you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit? That doesn't make any sense at all. If this is not Holy Spirit baptism, why did it remind him of the Lord's promise, you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit? I mean, that, that just settles it as far as I'm concerned. If then God gave unto them the like gift as he did also unto us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? So that the point being made is a convincing of Peter. A convincing of Peter here. Who was I that I could withstand God? Obviously Peter is thinking about persuasion. God was telling me something here. What was he telling me? Read verse uh, 18, Dan. When the earth these things that he came silent to the glorified God's name, then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. Well, the conclusion they granted was. I mean, the conclusion they uh, came up with was. That's right. That's what God intends. So that the point was, God was saying, he knew that these Jewish Christians were, were going to have a hard time making this jump, getting past this barrier. So here, when Peter has made the, uh, he's seen the vision of the animals let down the sheep, he's come here, he's preaching to Cornelius. Now that was a pretty big, pretty big step for Peter to do. And now while he's there, God just sends the Holy Spirit down. That is God's way of saying, I want these people to be saved too. See, I have chosen them to give the Holy Spirit. Now if I give them the Holy Spirit, then that means that I am willing and I desire for them to have the gospel too. That was the point. But isn't that what Jesus gave that mission years before? Going to all the nations? That, that's right. This is the way we're calling yeah. And that's good. I'm glad you're thinking about that because uh, you take in, in all three of the Great Commission accounts, all nations, every creature, among all nations. And then think about on the day of Pentecost. Remember when Peter preached to them uh, after he said, Repent and be baptized every one of you, for unto you is the promise and to your children and what else? To all that are afar off, which would be Gentiles. So one of the things that this teaches me is that even when the Spirit reveals something, he did not necessarily reveal the understanding of it. Um, it would therefore take time, as obviously it did take time, for Peter to re realize the full significance of the full significance of what the Spirit had already revealed to him, what Jesus had said, and what the Spirit had moved him to say with his own mouth. He still had not fully perceived what this meant. But you're you're exactly right. And to me, that is good evidence to show that this process of inspiration and revelation that we've talked about did not necessarily convey understanding automatically. I don't see any other conclusion from that, because if it did, then on the day of Pentecost, at least, he would have fully understood this about the uh, Gentiles, because he said it with his own mouth. <laughs>
And yet it was not until this vision that he had on the housetop and then coming here and seeing the Holy Spirit coming upon the house of Cornelius, not until then did he really, really get that point. that comes from the knowledge that's going to make the difference. Well, uh, tomorrow being the last day, isn't that something? Tomorrow, uh, probably what I will do is, I might have to think about it to decide what the most effective thing to do is. One, I have studied to prepare uh, a look at all the miracles, not individually every miracle, but to just show how they're grouped. And uh, so we may take a little time to do that just to emphasize the purpose of the miracles again, but we've also, we've done that and uh, there are lots of individual passages that we could look at in regard to the Holy Spirit. Now the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not such a big deal in the world at large as it is among brethren. Uh, and I have I have some material on that, so we may do we may do some on that. So let me just think about that, and we'll have our last lesson on that tomorrow. Do you guys have any questions about the uh, the Holy Spirit? Um, another thing we could look at, and we need to look at, is the healing, the so-called miraculous divine healing. So uh, I, I think we may need to look at that some too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, James five, yeah, yeah. So uh, we will, uh, we'll, so we'll kind of, we'll just make tomorrow clean up day and try to uh, get everything we haven't touched on, at least most of it.